who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is the podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hi, Hello. I'm Keegan. Oh, Wait, are we going to do our whoops. intro? No, we're not. Why would we? <laughs> We never do our intro when we Why record remotely. We? I mean, I we think could. I, was, I think I was so anxious because we haven't recorded in a minute. And I was just like, what if I don't remember how I don't, to start? <laughs> what if I don't remember how to be Keegan on What if I don't remember how feminist? to podcast? Right? What if exactly. I don't remember how to feminist? This is a thing. <laughs> well, hi, Keegan. Hi, how are you? Oh, my gosh. Life is crazy as always. But I'm sure life is even crazier for you right now. It's... A little, uh, a little wacky yeah. at the moment. I'm just really um, exhausted. But this <laughs> is what happens. Folks, let this be a warning to you. This is what happens when you um, overload yourself with stuff to do. And, oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's this thing has called there burnout. Ever, has there ever been anyone in your life that's maybe like told you that you should start to say no to more things? Like maybe the person that you're currently on FaceTime with? I don't know. Well, you know, it's typically stuff I want to be doing. You I know? know, like I want to be doing these things. It, of it's course just we like, want to do man, everything. Yes. Yes. Wanting to do everything is my toxic trait, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's all good stuff. Um, and I'm really happy. I'm happy for the most part about everything. It's just kind of ready to be back in LA. I've been in um, Missouri now for like a month and a week or so. And, yeah, it's uh, a lot of time to be home. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of time to be not not in your 
not in your house and in your bed in and your with your space. people, you know? Yeah, totally. I could totally understand yes. that. I, I mean, especially with the pandemic and everything, I've noticed that it's gotten worse. But the times that we have gone out of town, even for like those really short periods, like going to your wedding and things like that, I remember waking up in the Airbnb the next morning and just being like, this is weird. I want to be home in my house. Like I was just so not mm-hmm. used to like being like sleeping and staying elsewhere that it just felt really like uncomfortable for a moment. And I'm such a homebody, like my home is my like comfort space. I'm not one that's just like, let's pick up and go. Like I'm very much a homebody. So I would be missing my my space and my familiarness as well. I'm sure you're missing missing Anthony and the cats like crazy too. Yeah, totally. I'm getting so many pictures <laughs> of the cats though. So that's been really nice. Yeah, but like Post-pandemic travel has been really weird. Like, I traveled to Austin recently, and that was a whole nightmare situation. I was stuck in the Dallas airport for nine hours. Oh, my God. But, yeah. Your Instagram stories oh were heartbreaking. My God. It was uh, quite the ordeal. Um, but it's also just like travel, like right now, where people I don't want to say post pandemic because the pandemic is not over but people are very much acting like it is that's kind of what people are referring to it as that yeah yeah yeah. well now I think there's no mask mandates or anything in any airlines if I'm that is correctly I'm gonna be flying yeah Yeah, I'm gonna be flying for the first time since January 2020 this uh in like a couple weeks now and I cannot believe the inflated prices of airline mm-hmm. tickets like it is up 36 percent it is costing me over a thousand dollars to fly to philly yeah. and back like that is re- yeah. ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous so it's just like and max is like in the wedding so it's not like we can't right, go exactly. you know? i'm just like this is such bullshit it's awful <laughs> everything everything is so expensive and everything takes so much longer and it's so much more difficult. I thought you were going to say everything is awful. And I was like, what a great segue into what we're talking about today. Because you <laughs> I and mean, I yeah. have not recorded together uh, in quite some time. And so we... And so much has happened. Exactly. Yeah. So since the um, leaked draft memo from the United States Supreme Court that uh, suggested that Roe v. Wade is likely to be struck down, we have not recorded. Um no. So we have had listeners reach out to us, though, and ask for us specifically to talk about this topic, especially in the wake of that leak and everything that's been going on in the news. So I think it's really great that for myself and for everybody else to kind of go back and look at how Roe came to be and how those dangers even began. How did we get to where we are now and why is Roe still so important today as it was in 1973 and before. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's important to start with the statistic of nearly one in four women in the United States are expected to get an abortion at some point in their lives. And this is according to a 2017 study. And We heard that actually on, I think it was John Oliver or something else, Max and I were watching a show where they said that statistic and Max was like, that can't be right. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah. it is. Women just don't go around talking about it. It's not something that's in regular conversation. I personally know quite a few women, quite a few friends of mine who have had abortions. Um, It's just not something that you share about yourself all that much. And I think that was really kind of interesting to watch his expression and his reaction to that because he was like no like that can't be real and I'm like yeah it's like that's legit right I mean and this is a time where 
contraceptives are far more easily accessible than they have been in the past. Um, Things like Plan B exists, and while not totally accessible everywhere you live, um, is far more accessible than in decades past as well. And still, you know, the expectation for women or people with uteruses, rather, um, who will seek a divorce... uh, whoa, who will seek an abortion or receive an abortion uh, in their lifetime are one in four. So yeah, because there is no 100% safeguard when it comes to contraception. And then also for plan B, I mean, that's just kind of like when you think maybe you've messed up, I'm going to take it just in case. But there are many times that pregnancies can happen while being on the pill while using condoms, like none of these things are foolproof. And that's why it's important to have those other options available. Yes, absolutely. So just to talk a little bit about the draft opinion, um, it would not ban abortion nationwide, um, but it would instead allow states to drastically restrict or even ban abortion, which advocates for reproductive rights say would have seismic consequences on the country. And it absolutely would. We would essentially go yeah. back to pre-Roe America in terms of reproductive health and abortion access. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like before Roe v. Wade. So as we touched on in our Jane Collective episode, which at this moment, I would highly recommend going back and listening. You know, this week, as I was kind of compiling all my notes, I was realizing that a lot of the things that I was writing was very similar to things that I felt like I was learning about a year ago and things like that. Um, I mean, it's interesting because until the 19th century, abortion was legal in the United States before what is called quickening, which is the point when a woman could first feel movements of the fetus, which is usually around the fourth month of pregnancy. So until about like the 1820s and 1830s, that's when we started to see some regulation, particularly when it came to the sale of drugs that people would use to induce abortion. And even with the regulations, these drugs were still advertised and sold, even though they were known to be potentially fatal. So they were just beginning to try to chip away at people's access to their reproductive care. And then it was when the newly formed American Medical Association began calling for criminalization of abortions in the 1850s. But this was also partly because doctors wanted to eliminate competitors with like midwives and homeopaths and things like that. So it wasn't so much as to the health and safety of what they would one day call the unborn children. It's more so in the interest of doctors, money, pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals, drugs, things like that. It doesn't seem to be right. as heavily enforced and when it comes to like a woman or baby's health. Yeah, and, you know? and you're talking about um, that's it's very patriarchal as well there, right? Because you have midwifery, which is traditionally a very female-led um, practice or a women-led oh, yeah. um, practice, and um, doctors and physicians, which at the time were majority, if not completely male um male driven and oh if there was a female powerful doctor in some way in the 1800s i mean i'm sure there were female doctors in the 1800s but i mean like 
probably few and far between. <laughs> right. I mean, I'd be interested to see exactly at what time we had the the first licensed, um, you know, female physician in the United States. Uh, but, you know, there it's safe to say there weren't many, if any, at this time. And um, all states throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries had pre-quickening abortions, um, and they were considered to be actions of lawful purpose. But this meant that if the mother died, the individual performing the abor- the abortion was guilty of yes. murder. So I think that that was also, um, I think that that played into why they sought to um, make these things illegal or put more restrictions on them because the people who were receiving the punishment oftentimes were, were the doctors. Men. Yeah, the doctors yeah, performing exactly. the procedures. So to answer your earlier question, I Googled it, and the first licensed female physician in the United States was Elizabeth Blackwell, and she got her license in 1849. Well, there you go. So that would have been around the same time that all of this was going on, but not quite. But I'm sure, I don't know if Elizabeth Blackwell was all that involved in um, the... Uh, you know, abortion community and all that kind of stuff. I also, just because this is a big part of my growing up, I find it interesting how the Catholic Church was so yes. um, monumental in what I think was really the spread of not so much being concerned for, you know, the doctors and who's getting in trouble, but that was when the concern really turned to the quote-unquote unborn children and this religious doctrine you know, revolving, you know, when human life starts and it beginning at conception. And I think when the Catholic Church, especially with its prominence, began speaking more and more about that, that started inching its ways into our our laws mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a really good episode um, about this, um, not that particularly, but about how the evangelical right managed to like weasel their way into politics because it wasn't always oh my a gosh. thing. You know, we've, we've mentioned yeah. it on this podcast before that the abortion issue, as like we now refer to it, um, was not always a political issue or a, a benchmark no. of the, of the right. It's, it became something that was very deliberate. It's a political power move. Mm-hmm. There's actually, I've talked about it on the show before, but there's a great documentary series on Netflix called The Family, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep, yep. And that goes into it as well, where, yeah, that's right, we had talked about it because you said you'd seen it as well, where it really goes into how, you know, the religious right has kind of infiltrated our politics and things like that. And it's very, very true. I'm going to talk about a group a little bit later on when we talk about more things Right, following Roe that was also very influential and you know kind of powered by religion. Yeah, it was interesting to know why they did that too because I feel like oftentimes people who are religious will think that it's from a righteous place. It's not from a righteous place. In fact, the people who are enacting this are not necessarily religious themselves. Um, It has a, a lot more to do, I think, with. It's the voters and their money and their power. Well, like they and want their, those votes. And their conviction, right? Because if you, you will always have a very steady base. If you can get them riled up about something connected to their belief system. Um, that, and abortion has been that main thing. Right, yeah. That they can really stand behind and say, like, this is righteous for me to fight for. And, you know, yeah. what's more righteous than babies? And um, if you're able course. to tie that up in their religion, you will always have a steady stream of voters ready to show up at the polls for you. 
Oh, no matter who the candidate is, it really doesn't matter. I mean, look at Donald Trump. He is not a person that throughout his life was, uh, you know, openly against abortion or anything like that. And in fact, I'm sure he was very much the other way around. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, I don't sure he's paid for many he's paid for his number number of abortions. Right. So this is not a guy that you Mm -hmm. would think would be this like righteous leader. Right. But once. The Federalist Society, the group I was kind of mentioning earlier that I'll talk about later, you know, they're very much involved in conservative politics, especially with, you know, anti-abortion laws and things like that. They needed Donald Trump and Donald Trump needed them in turn to get the votes and the popularity that he had. Like they really do work hand in hand. It has nothing to do with the candidate or their morals or where they stand on the issue. If you're a Republican, Mm -hmm. your best bet is going to be to go with the most conservative um, policies in order for that base to support you. Right. I mean, I knew some pro-life evangelical Christians who did not like Trump at all. And when asked specifically, why did you vote for him? It was, well, because he'll put people on the Supreme Court who will overturn Roe v. Wade because I think that abortion is morally wrong um, or objectionable in some way to me and my principles and my religion. Which can we just say right off the bat that someone's morals should not be the reason that we change our laws? Can we just like start with that before we go anywhere? Because that's the one thing that kept running through my mind this entire time, especially when so much during my notes, everything was always revolving around the Privacy Act. And it's about our own right to making our own decisions with our life, whether to marry, have kids, what jobs we want, how we want to um, live our lives in America is up to us. And that's what part of that Privacy Act and the 14th Amendment is all about. So the fact that the argument is that it's morally wrong doesn't make any sense to why we should change the law. Well, especially, well, here's the thing. Like, there is universally understood morality, right? Like, in, in certain respects. Don't kill why people. You don't steal, you know? Yes, exactly. Like, there are certain things. It's, like, universally held. Yes, don't don't um, walk into someone's house and shoot them in the face, right? Like, that is morally reprehensible. And we can argue in court whether or not uh, motive or, or what el- uh, whatever else. Um, however, like, it's generally understood that that's, like, something that you shouldn't do. However, if... What you're saying is tied to your specific religious belief. That is not that that's not a universally held moral no. belief. That is your specific religious belief. There are lots of different religions who have lots of different um, beliefs regarding the issue of abortion and when life begins. So you can't say as a universal truth that what you believe to be true based on your religion is universally right. true for everyone and every religion because it just isn't and also by the way the bible doesn't even say that that life begins at conception but the thing that is so nuts and like when you were talking about that let's say for example you want the catholic church to or catholic people to remember there are other religions and other points of views every single mass i attended i would say and i'm gonna butcher it but it's like i believe in the one holy catholic and apostolic church above all else it's like it is better than anything Mm -hmm. else it is above any other religion It is above every other thing i believe in that. So I think that for a lot of people who are very, very religious, that trumps over anyone else's idea of what a law should be or anyone else's religious beliefs, because you are taught to believe what you have been taught is correct and everyone else is wrong. 
Right. Yeah. And I understand that, but it, it completely undermines the freedom that all of these so-called patriots seem to idolize so right. much, you know, and they put they put this freedom in the United States on this pedestal and then they seek to limit the freedom of others um, at every turn, judging by their I mean, you know, based on their own beliefs. Right. So, OK, let's let's go back to um, the Catholic Church. So in 1869, the Catholic Church banned abortion at any stage of pregnancy. And then in 1873, Congress passed the Comstock Law, which we've discussed before, yeah. which made it illegal to distribute contraceptives and abortion-inducing drugs through the mail. Um, and by the 1880s, abortion was outlawed across most of the country. Yeah, it happened very fast, really. Movement. Yes, and I, I also like to point out, just because I also find this subject really fascinating, and it's been on our list of topics to um, discuss, and we will be having a podcast episode about it, but the anti-abortion movement was also linked to the um, eugenics yeah, movement. Yeah, or like the population the, control movement, quote-unquote, as well. <laughs> right, right. But like this eugenics movement that was very popular in the 1920s and 1930s right. was highly white supremacist like a lot of white supremacists were very um, pro-eugenic right. advocates and they were alarmed at this time because there was such a growing population of immigrants um, who were coming into the country so there were anti-abortion activists um, who felt that way because they feared the declining birth rates among white american-born protestant women yep. right they're like we have to protect the white race we can't yeah. let all of these immigrants coming in having all of these children right well and actually during one of ronald reagan's like leaked tapes of him discussing different things with one of his aides one of the things he discussed was his views on abortion and he had an incredibly horrible response in saying that when white people and black people procreate then abortion is accessible or is acceptable then and rape which I'm like, don't put those two mm. in the same category. But to a lot of people at that time, their belief was so strong that we had to keep this white supremacy strong that they mm -hmm. were willing to bend their morals when people they didn't want to be created could be stopped, you know? Right. Damaging mm -hmm. as hell. Yep. Damaging as hell. So we're going to control yes. some people, but we're not going to control everybody. We're going to pick and choose so often, rather than, again, like we said, rather than arresting the women who were having abortions, legal officials were more likely to interrogate them to obtain evidence against the individual who was doing the right. abortions. And this law enforcement strategy was a response to juries who would refuse to convict women prosecuted of abortion in the 19th century. So there was a time, isn't it like kind of bizarre to think of that, like, maybe we hate women more? in some respects now than we did then. Yeah. You know, now where we have all of these, like in Texas, there are literal like bounty laws where you can track these women down, right? Um, whereas then there was at least a certain amount of sympathy. I think it was more that like this poor woman was too stupid. So we have to blame the doctor. I don't know. I think that it was almost like, I, don't a dis know. I wonder if it was more of like a dismissal of a woman's participation in something like that where, you know, oh, this this woman doesn't know any better. Of course, she's asking for this abortion, whatever, this feeble-minded person. But this doctor should know better. This doctor should have said, no, I'm not going to perform this procedure. It's illegal and I'm going to get right. in trouble. I mean, but they did it anyway. Certainly, you know? certainly, I think that the amount of sympathy that was given to women at this time was probably based in, in misogyny and patriarchy, definitely. 
a misguided sense of chivalry, I'm sure, is what that was. Is like, well, we're not going to prosecute this woman. Hasn't she been through enough yeah. kind of thing? It, probably. Well, and I would also um, assume but, that in the interrogation process of asking these women about the doctors and the procedure, that it was also a very damaging, probably really traumatic experience. I don't think police interrogations in general are super like fun, friendly experiences to have. So I can imagine that it would be really difficult even for these women to go through that experience in in general to be able to give that information. I just feel like it'd be a very scary time. Oh, sure. But I mean, I'm saying that the law enforcement tactic of even interrogating them to get that information was born out of the fact that they were arresting the women and putting the women on trial. And it was juries who were refusing to convict the women. So women weren't being convicted. And so they were like, well, somebody needs to be convicted for this abortion. Uh, So that's when they started really going heavy on interrogation tactics. And I should also clarify that the bounties and all of that stuff that's happening in Texas, it is also for abortion providers. So that has never changed. Like that has remained consistent, you know, throughout this entire um, history of abortion in the United States. So let's jump ahead a little bit. So during the birth of the second wave, quite a lot of women's liberation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're jumping ahead literally 100 years now. Yeah. So during the birth of the second wave, when the women's liberation movement was really starting to take off, we began to see more and more court cases involving the use of contraceptives. You can go back and listen to our um, birth control episode where we do get into the history of, of that and the Comstock law and everything else. In 1965, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a law banning the distribution of birth control to married couples, ruling that the law violated their implied right to privacy under the U.S. Constitution. And this is kind of the first um, little crack in the door that's going to lead us to Roe Yeah, at least married couples can make the decision. Which, good, but also, like, so weird yeah. that it's just like, well, you're married, so I guess you can decide not to have kids now well or it's like you have the right to choose how many kids I think that's kind of where they're coming from where it's like if you already have three you have the right not to have four or five or six you know things like that I feel like that's kind of the mentality didn't want them I feel like there had to have been at least a couple couples who were like I don't want can we just get married just because like I want access to birth control and like I mean, I don't want that kids. would be a great workaround. Um, in 1972, the Supreme Court then struck down a law which prohibited the distribution of contraceptives to unmarried couples. So it took a couple more years for the lucky unmarried ones to be able to access contraceptives. And all the while, in 1970, Hawaii was the first in the U.S. to make abortion legal. Then it was New York. And by the time Roe came along in 1973, many more states had also also joined just a handful of them, um, Alaska, Washington State. I didn't write it down, but I think California as well was part of the group. California, of, yes, as well. Right, of states that made it legal to have an abortion. So there were, you know, some different advancements being made in the world of contraceptives, but then at the same time, some advancements when it came to legalizing abortion. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, Newsmakers, I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, so full disclosure to our listeners, we had some recording issues, and um, I needed to go. I needed to run to the preview night for uh, my show, so we just hit a pause, and now we are back at it. The next day, we are fresh-faced, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and ready to finish this episode for you. You know, it's kind of interesting because prior to the United States annexation of Hawaii, which is really something that we should do an entire episode about because gross, um, (laughs) abortions were not uncommon in Hawaii, but once it became a territory, it was restricted like all other states. Um, and New York actually became this place where was it was kind of like a haven for people to go to. It was widely advertised. Like they had billboards and everything yeah. that was like legal abortions here. But, you know, with that said, people were having to travel out of state in most cases because it was legal in these states, but it was illegal in 30 states without exception. And then the remaining 15 states prohibited it as well, but had varying exceptions for cases like rape, right. health threats. Etc. I know that in um, Hawaii as well, it was the case where they could protect their own citizens, but they couldn't do it. The way that I understood how, what I read was that they couldn't do abortions for somebody coming out of state either. Um, so I guess it's only it was only legally protected for its own residents. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, and because of this back alley or self-induced abortions, uh, which were both illegal and incredibly dangerous, were not uncommon at all. Between 200,000 and 1.2 million illegal abortions took place every year in the 1950s and 60s. um, And this is a number that was estimated by the Guttmacher Institute. In 1971, A woman named Shirley Wheeler was charged with manslaughter after Florida hospital staff reported her illegal abortion to police. And Wheeler was one of a few women who were prosecuted by their states for abortion, which is something that I think that we're very um, scared of seeing again. Yeah. She received a sentence of two years probation and as an option under her probation chose to move back into her parents' house in North Carolina. And I found this interesting. The Playboy Foundation donated $3,500 to her defense fund and Playboy Magazine actually denounced her prosecution. So Playboy, very problematic problematic for... Many, 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 many re- reasons, but I thought that that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the Boston Women's Abortion Coalition also raised money and held a rally where attendees listened to speakers from the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition, and eventually her conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court of Florida. Mm. So, I mean, I bring this up um, not only because I found it interesting, but also because I think that there's a real big fear that that's something that we're going to start seeing more of, not only abortion providers being prosecuted, but also women um, seeking and obtaining illegal abortions. Right. I actually, when I woke up this morning, the first thing I saw on Instagram, I didn't click it because it was it was too much for my brain first thing in the morning. But I saw something about a woman not in the United States being charged for like uh, what was it being charged for manslaughter, I believe, and being sent to prison for 30 years for what I read as a miscarriage. So I don't right, Yes. So I but happened. I, yeah, to a I, woman in Indiana. Yeah. 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 Was was it Indiana? I thought it was in another country. I can't like I said, I read the headline and I was it was literally first thing I saw in the morning when I opened my phone. I was like, this is too much for me first thing in the morning. So I haven't looked into it yet. But I think that that's a very clear indication of a very, very real fear 
that all of us are experiencing now and hearing about it happening before Roe and hearing this, uh, you know, where we could potentially be going to pre-Roe times. It's a great example of why everybody mm-hmm. is feeling that fear. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the attorneys that represented Jane Roe and how all of this kind of came to be, because I find all of this very, very interesting, the whole background to this case. So we talked about Sarah Weddington a little bit earlier in the year. Did we do a full episode on her or did we just talk about her enough in a mini episode? Again, I feel like sometimes my brain gets so jumbled with the information we put out. I do not think we have done an episode on her. No. Okay. I think we just talked about her a little bit on the mini episode then when she passed away because I was remembering some of her biography when I was writing this down. So she did just very recently pass away like around Christmas time of, um, 2021. Sarah was born in Abilene, Texas in February 1945 to a Methodist minister father. Her family was very religious. She was super good in school growing up. She graduated high school two years early and headed to the University of Texas Law School in 1964, where she was only one of five women in her class of 120 people. During her third year of law school in 1967, she became pregnant with Ron Weddington, um, who I don't know if they were married at the time. It seems like they were probably just dating. Um, They then... She then traveled to Mexico to obtain an illegal abortion, but this was actually something that she kept to herself until 1992. So when working on Roe and working with Norma, who would be Jane Roe, this wasn't something that was openly discussed and she didn't share with the people working with her. That same year that she had traveled to Mexico for the abortion, she graduated in the top quarter of her class and received her Juris Doctorate. After college, she struggled to get hired being a female attorney, and so she began working with a group of grad students from the University of Texas in Austin who were researching ways to challenge different anti-abortion statutes. And Linda Coffey was very similar. Um, She actually had a similar upbringing as well. She was born on Christmas Day in 1942 in Houston, Texas, and got her law degree from the University of Texas in 1968, which is the same year as Sarah. So if they didn't know each other well, they probably knew each other, you know, a little bit throughout the female Texas law world. Right, by you know? reputation. Yeah. Certainly. Also, much like Sarah, she came from a religious family. She was raised Southern Baptist. Uh, one thing she discusses in an interview with Vanity Fair was that in high school, her class was shown a cautionary film about abortion, and Linda was struck that it was so crucial for women to be the ones in charge of their own fertility and wondered why it was okay for men to not care or to be very promiscuous mm-hmm. with sex, but not for women, and why it was so much their responsibility responsibility. Um, So before meeting with Sarah and working on Roe, Linda had helped a childhood friend turned lawyer named Harry McCluskey, who was a gay man who was defending another gay man who was challenging sodomy laws in Texas. And when Linda heard about this case, she saw this as going against the Privacy Act and helped her friend McCluskey fight this case, which they won. And the court ruled the law unconstitutional, but only for married couples, which doesn't make sense to me because gay people couldn't get married at the time. So Mm -hmm. it really wasn't like great protection for this guy, but still, I guess, a good start. Um, This case was also very important to Linda because she herself was a closeted lesbian. Uh, And so she actually kind of stayed in the background of this case for that reason as well. She kind of helped behind the scenes and things like that. 
And it was actually her friend McCluskey who had gotten in touch with Norma McCorvey, who would be Jane Roe, because originally Norma was, you know, looking to get an abortion. He was an, I believe, an adoption attorney at the time. And he was like, you know, I think I might have someone that can help you. And so he introduced Linda Coffey originally to Norma McCorvey. And Linda and Sarah decided to start working together because they were kind of seeking out a plaintiff. Like it wasn't like it fell into their laps and they decided right. to yes. you know, put this case up. They were actively looking for pregnant women who wanted an abortion to start pushing you know, these laws forward and things like that. So right, because this case was not the only case that was happening no, at this time. No. There were several other um, cases, row cases, actually, something um, happening was in different states across the country. There was a doe going on that reached, I believe, the Supreme Court, like pretty much at the same time they were kind of running concurrently, concurrently. Right. Wow, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a word. Um, Thank so you. <laughs> a about uh, about Norma. So in 1970, Norma McCorvey was 21 years old. She was living in Dallas. She was pregnant for the third time. She'd given up her first two children. Um, One, her mother essentially raised, and the other was given up for adoption. And she did not want to Her mother, no, her mother like got tricked her to sign adoption papers and like when she was out of town like stole the baby away and put the baby up for adoption and then the other one uh which you were just gonna say was uh raised was did she raise that one jennifer the second one um i read that her mother raised one of the children and the other was given up for adoption yeah i got really into norma's backstory because did you know that she was um arrested at the age of 10 after she robbed a cash register and she and her female friend like skipped town to Oklahoma and then a maid caught them kissing yes she had a really troubled childhood oh my god yeah Um, her mom was an asshole her mom was terrible her mother hit her um she was in fact caught kissing a female friend after running away and then was sent to reform school for punishment um, Which she, she was, actually loved. Like that was in what I'd read. That was like the happiest time in her life was when she had that structure. Because if she wasn't in school, she was living with her mother's cousin who was horribly sexually abusive to her. So she would like almost do things to get herself in trouble to go back to. I believe it was the second school she was sent to, which was like a Texas state school. And she remembers that as being like the happiest time of her childhood, which is really sad. Yeah, I mean, her life is really, really sad. Eventually, she ends up marrying a man who is abusive to her, um, and she escapes that marriage, and she ends up in a long-term relationship with a woman. Um, but, of course, we're talking about the 1970s. Right. So it was not always a super welcoming time, especially where um, Norma lived in Texas. Yeah. and she was fairly open about her sexuality at the time. She also struggled with a lot of drug and alcohol problems and things like that. So it seems like during this time, at least in her social circles, she was out she was out as a lesbian. And I can imagine that that would also be incredibly tough living in Texas, struggling with an alcohol addiction and a drug addiction and all of these things, you know, and she must have been incredibly fertile because she got pregnant real easy. I feel like it was always just one after the other when Mm -hmm. I was reading about her. And when you have a, a hard time supporting yourself and living a healthy life for yourself, I can imagine the stress she would be under bringing all of these other lives into the world. 
Right. I mean, she simply wasn't prepared to become a parent and honestly, like good on her for being able to realize that this was not something that she could take on. 100%. Um, it was really, you know, kind of going from low paying job to low paying job and living really paycheck to paycheck. So whenever Linda and Sarah um, found her case, they really thought that she was a very well suited plaintiff for yeah. the lawsuit because her socioeconomic circumstances were such that it wasn't possible for her to travel outside of the state to get a legalized abortion. Yeah. Um, and it just wasn't a solution for this person who was clearly not ready to be a parent. Right, totally. You know? I did do some reading in my research where they did discuss that she was also a perfect plaintiff because she was a white woman. I think that's important to point uh-huh. out as well because yes. Oh, yes. there were plenty of people that I think they could have used as perfect plaintiffs, but because she was, you know, an impoverished white woman, I'm sure they saw that as an advantage to winning their case over supporting, you know, oh, certainly. a black person yeah, who certainly. would be pregnant, and you know? We'll discuss the numbers a little later on, but um, women, because of course, these laws are going to most negatively impact, <clears throat> wow, because, of course, these laws are going to most negatively impact people who are below the poverty line. Right. And unfortunately, because of systemic racism in this country, uh, a lot especially of the people who are time. at... Yes, especially during this time, people who are at or below the poverty line are oftentimes people of color. So um, black people with uteruses, uh, you know, Latinx people with uteruses, and also Native American people with uteruses are far more likely um, to need to seek an abortion and be unable to get one and are therefore far more negatively impacted by these laws. Also, um, forcing someone who is of a lower socioeconomic class already to see a pregnancy to term and endeavor, uh, you know, pregnancy itself and then also labor and child rearing is massively expensive. You know, that's something that is uh, talked about a lot. And so it does, forcing people to make choices that they otherwise wouldn't make. It's almost like forcing a financial burden. It's putting this Mm -hmm. financial burden on somebody who is trying to tell you, look, I can't handle this. Yes, it keeps people in a cycle of poverty because as we know, wealthy people are always going to be able to obtain a safe abortion. That is never going to be a problem. That's something something we cannot say enough, you know? It's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's never going to be a problem for them. So there's definitely this element of trying to keep the poor poor um, in order to. Uh, I really do feel like that's part of it. In order to yeah. um, hold on to power as wealthy white people in this country, right? One hundred percent. I really think that to this day, it's so tied to class and race. Because what else would it be, especially when these incredibly powerful white men in power, you know, of course, of course, 100%. Yeah, and the means means of production, you know, I've seen that um, talked about a lot, that we lost so much of our workforce during COVID, right? Like how many people died? We saw the workforce kind of dwindling. Um, Uh People are not having babies electively right now um, as much as they did before because we can't afford to yeah. um, because of the system that we live under. And, you know, my my co-host of My Worst Date wrote this really wonderful um, 
piece where she coined this this term that I just play in my head all the time, which is that capitalism needs bodies. Yeah, capitalism needs bodies. It needs for us to be having kids, um, so that the workforce remains sustained. Uh, and I really think that that's a big part of it as well. I know that th- this is not what this episode, you know, we're talking about Roe v. Wade and and Jane Roe right now. But, but that's all so much on the minds of people then, people now. This is the reason why people did not want abortion to be legal in this country because of all of those supremacist feelings. I think it's incredibly mm-hmm. valid, yeah. especially when talking about Norma, because, you know, there was a conversation that I read about between Norma and Sarah Weddington in particular, where Norma was asking, like, am am I the person you really want for this? And Sarah was very, you know, frank with her. And she was like, yeah, you're impoverished and you're white, you're going to do great. You know, essentially, yeah. it was like the paraphrasing yeah. of that. And I don't necessarily think that that was to be a a diss but I think it's just kind of stating like to have the success that you wanted at that time much like when we talk about I I think of the first wave of feminism the fact that they were able to so easily forget the abolitionist movement to focus on their own cause you know I, I think that that repeats itself a lot through history and even if it's not a malicious intent there is a reason why we would choose Norma over someone else to achieve mm-hmm. what we wanted in our abortion laws. Yep, absolutely. So let's get into when Sarah and Linda filed the suit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas on behalf of Norma under the legal pseudonym Jane Roe. And that is how everybody would know her throughout the entirety of the trials. She didn't come out and give her her real identity until months afterward. Um, So she didn't even show up to the trials, I guess. It was, you know, Sarah and Linda met her before. They worked with her. They were like, okay, see you later. And they didn't even see her until much after the trials as well. So after that, it was kind of out of Norma's hands and into the hands of these two attorneys. Yes. So eventually in 1973, the Supreme Court did rule in favor of Jane Roe in a 7-2 decision striking down the Texas law and federally legalizing abortion. So the court declared that the state's anti-abortion law violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which essentially protects one's right to privacy against state action. So this constitutional right to privacy, the court held, um, encompassed one's qualified right to terminate their pregnancy. And I know that this was something that was widely debated because that 14th Amendment, a lot of people will argue, was specifically for search and seizure, um, meaning like it protects your right to physical privacy, right? Like the privacy you have right. like within your home rather than your bodily autonomy, right? And in fact, right. they the constitution really doesn't say anything about women at all. So um, a lot of people will make that argument and continue to make that argument to this day that the 14th amendment does not apply to bodily autonomy. I'm reading just the text of the 14th amendment right now. And I do see, at least in my interpretation of where 
I can see where it would kind of be your own personal self as your property and where it says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Because when I hear any person of life, liberty or property, I don't know, a lot of that to me, when you're adding life in there, it's like how you choose to live your life liberty it's the freedom to choose how you're going to live your life so I can see where it's so easy to interpret these things in different ways and I can understand how a lot of people could see that as meaning your own personal life and what you choose to do with it but I do also believe that title x was involved a little bit which did talk more about personal choice and right to privacy and what you like what you decide to do in your marriage and things like that i didn't take any notes on it so don't quote me on that but i believe that that was also part of their decision to kind of rely on the 14th amendment and these privacy laws especially because there have been other cases like the one i mentioned earlier with the sodomy law in texas where privacy was used to defend that decision. Right. I mean, and obviously, like the way that you've interpreted the law is the way that it was interpreted eventually um, by the Supreme Court as well. So there were only two justices um, who dissented from the court's decision, and that is Justice White, <clears throat> Justice White, who argued um that basically the Constitution, like I was saying, does not support the court's decision to value the, quote, convenience of the pregnant mother more right. than the continued existence and development of the life or potential life she carries. See, and, uh, that's where, and that's where he didn't do his homework. Because so the person who was in charge of writing the decision was Justice Blackman, who really took a lot of time to do research of the history of abortion, abortion law. They actually went to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, which um, is a huge, you know, medical place, lots of books. I don't know. I, I just grew up around it. Big deal. Anyways, um, there he read a book by Lawrence Ladder, who was the founding chairman of Narrow Pro-Choice America. And uh, in that book, they actually hypothesized that, you know, a ruling in abortion would undoubtedly be a landmark in abortion decisions. And it also talked about, um, you know, viability of a fetus outside of the womb. He did a lot of research as to, you know, when could a fetus potentially survive and how that would be related to the timeline of when a woman could have an abortion. Now, the way I was reading this in my research seemed strange to me, and I forgot to look this up, but it says that the court separated pregnancy into three trimesters. But I feel like yes, we used trimesters I, before that. I don't know that we did, because that's what I read as well, that the court separated it into three trimesters, right? which I found very interesting as well, because it's used so widely medically um, that it's one of exactly. those things that I just assumed was a medical term, right? That is just like you have exactly. you know, first, second and third trimester in pregnancy. Exactly. So the court separated pregnancy into three trimesters and declared that and declared that the choice to end pregnancy was legal in the first trimester, and in the second trimester, the government could regulate abortion but not ban it in order to protect the pregnant person's health. In the third trimester, the state could prohibit abortion to protect a fetus that could survive on its own outside the womb, except with the pregnant party's health is in danger. So that is a very clear indicator that 
it's just as important to monitor the health of the person carrying the child as it is for the fetus inside of them. And I think that that really makes it clear. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, that he's saying um, his wording here and it's it's disgusting wording. Right. But uh, his wording here, Justice White, is the convenience of the pregnant mother, which is an argument that I hear a lot of people say that, you know, if we make abortions legal, then women are going to use it like birth control as if that is anything we would want to be doing. If you would just let us have easy access to birth control, then we wouldn't have to be getting abortions. Like this is all, exactly. we're all going to work together here, everybody. Let's just put our heads together. Exactly. So they make it sound like this is all done for convenience sake. And then he also uses the term potential life, right? Which I feel like is so damaging. And so subjective. And that's like be more specific because potential life, I mean, is sperm potential life? Are my eggs that are sitting unfertilized in me right now? Or are those potential life? Like what does it mean? You know, um, I just feel like that's not a good argument. So it's really not. And it really does go to me. Like they're stating so clearly a lot of this, like medical examples of they're using the term fetus, you know, things like this. It's like, we're not talking about unborn children in this decision. We're talking about fetuses. So it's so upsetting to have a judge use that term you know I can't remember what word he said but essentially you know referring to the unborn children it's just so damaging when that wasn't any part of the the original text that was handed out in the decision right yeah so that's Justice White who is one who dissented the other who dissented is Justice Rehnquist and he argued which is what I was saying earlier um, that abortions performed by licensed physicians on clients are not considered private. Right. And that the 14th Amendment intended the right to privacy to mean freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. And I, you know, like I said, I think that that might be the case um, in, in, the ter- in terms of when the Constitution was written. But right. I really feel like it doesn't make any sense. Our country is so weird that we base so much of our current law um, and what we do in a current modern society that has changed and grown so much on a document that doesn't mention women, that doesn't consider um, people of color to be human beings, right? Um, And so to be so literal about this document and to say, okay, well, that's not what the founding fathers um, intended when they wrote the 14th Amendment. That's not what these six white dudes intended. Yeah, exactly. It's right that you have to be able to interpret it to your modern life. You have to move with the times. There's no way we can have the same laws that we had back then. It would be absolutely absurd. We've grown from then. We've learned since then. That's Mm -hmm. not how this works. (laughs) To be honest, like, can we just write a new one at this point? Like, I just really feel like this is so outdated. Let's get some brains together. Let's rewrite the Constitution in the yeah, world yeah, of 2022. And it should be a living, breathing document. That's why we have amendments, right? Like things are supposed to change with the times. It's not an infallible exactly. document. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't make sense that we um, tend to uphold these quote unquote founding fathers as these infallible beings, you know. <sighs> when they were um, so damaged and problematic, you know. So flawed. They were so flawed and people get so 
like defensive whenever you bring that up. I know. That, like they were incredibly flawed human beings. It's um, crazy. It's very bizarre that we give a shit so much about these dead white guys, but whatever. Yeah, we don't care about them. <laughs> we don't listen. Like we didn't know them. Hamilton, I loved the musical. You were still shitty. Um, <laughs> one thing that I also enjoyed about this decision was the distinction that it could be very damaging to people that it can be very damaging to people's mental health and way of life to not let them seek an abortion. Number one being having unwanted children may force the woman into a distressful life and future. Two, it could cause psychological harm, which I think is kind of in part with number one. And three, caring for a child could tax the mother's physical and mental health. And I think that that's really important that that was the distinction that was made in this decision because it isn't just about the fact that we have to worry about the fetus's vitality, but also that would this would this be a negative in this person's life to bring another life into the world, which is what we were just discussing earlier Mm -hmm. when we talked about um, keeping the poor poor and things like that. So I do think it's really Mm -hmm. important that that was acknowledged that we have to think of the best interest of everybody involved, not just this quote unquote unborn child to those. Right. I mean, if you the other side, you know, Yes, totally. I mean, like, uh, there are people in my life who I have looked at, uh, there are people I'm related to, who I've looked at and said, you never should have had kids. Right? Like, you should not have had kids. Um, It's not good for you. It's clearly you're not cut out for motherhood. Um, And it's therefore also not good for your children who now have to um, navigate the world with a parent who is ill-equipped and often disinterested as well. Kids know. Kids realize it. I saw it. I felt it. I've talked to other people where it's like, yeah, I just felt that vibe from my parent. You know, I just did an interview with Lauren for our last episode and she talked about how her mom was, you know, the fifth girl born and it was like 16 years after the last kid because they really wanted a boy. And her mom just really felt that throughout her childhood that like, um, you know, my dad especially really wanted me to be a boy. Those are things mm-hmm. that really yep. stick with kids as they grow yeah. up. It hurts their self-esteem. I mean, I'm still dealing with that shit. It's really... It's really damaging to everybody involved for the parent, for the child. And that's why I think it really is important to make that distinction mm-hmm. as health, yeah, and not on, just being about the physical health of a fetus, but about the absolutely. full spectrum of health for everybody involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I also, on the other side of that, um, know a friend of ours, actually, who um, has been pretty open about her abortion. And she told me the first time she told me about it, she said, if I had had to go through with this, uh, with this pregnancy, I don't know what I would have done. Like her mental yeah. health would not have been able like, to handle. I probably wouldn't um, be here. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like her mental health could just not handle um, going through with a pregnancy um, that she did not want. She doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be a mother. Um, She was already pregnant. (laughs) You know, it's like want to be pregnant. Absolutely. Doesn't want to give birth like none of that stuff. And then she was already in such a uh, her mental health was in such a way already that it was just it would have been unsustainable for her. And we're just going to see. And that's why the fact that that she had access is so important and she was able to take care of it like oh my gosh and and imagining this person being unable to because like you don't even have to say I know who you're talking about it's Mm -hmm. like it it hurts my heart to think of them 
being in pain that way and having to go through that, knowing this person's experiences and things like that. So the fact that she was able to have such quick access and support Mm -hmm. in that Mm -hmm. decision of hers is so important. And to think that there are so many people right now who already don't have that kind of access and support is absolutely heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And when she was telling me about that, you know, it was right. She was able to obtain her abortion right before lockdown. Yeah. So that, that conversation really came out of um, discussing what it must have been like, because we talked about it on the podcast um, when everything was shut down, access to abortions. um, It was very difficult to obtain one other than maybe like a a medication abortion. Um, Yeah, exactly. It was a lot of like abortion by mail at the time. I remember mm -hmm. being like a thing. Yeah. And, (laughs) and so that's what she was expressing was her fear of not being able to obtain one and how lucky she felt that she was able to obtain one right before lockdown. And there are so many women who weren't able to, and that feeling and that fear is only going to increase with the last of lack with the lack of accessibility that we are going to see moving forward. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about Jane Roe after Roe v. Wade? I think we have to. I think that's really important because she yes. went through quite a transformation. So I think it was so important that we discuss the life that Norma experienced before this trial yes. and this insurgence of attention that she was getting. And I'm sure she was still struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. She really just came from a rough go of it. And so when all of this was over, she wrote a memoir called I Am Roe, which came out in 1994. And when she was on a book tour, she befriended this evangelical pastor who then like convinced her to convert. She was baptized in a swimming pool by this guy in 1995. And after that, she became an incredibly vocal advocate against abortion, voicing her regret being a part of Roe v. Wade and claiming that she had been a pawn in the abortion activist game. And she even wrote another book in 98 um, where she she discussed her changing views, her conversion, things like that. So these two books that she put out were very, very different. And she was actually arrested in 2004 for shouting during Al Franken's opening statement during Sonia Sotomayor's confirmation hearings. So she was definitely like a very prominent face in the anti-abortion movement between the early 70s all the way through like the mid 2000s she denounced yeah. her sexuality she was like but, me and connie are still living kept, together but we're yeah, platonic she kept living with her partner the, here's the thing about norma mccorvey i i personally don't think she had any strong strongly held beliefs in either direction well no um, because while she renounced being a lesbian she continued to live with her partner and then she did um you know there was in the documentary aka jane Rowe. she said quote i was the big fish i think it was a mutual thing i took anti-abortion groups money and they put me out in front of yep. the camera and told me what to say and that's what i'd say if a young woman wants to have an abortion that's no skin off my ass that's why they call it a choice so she exactly. was pro-choice throughout her life. She just 
Do you know how much sure money the tax of money four hundred and fifty thousand dollars just on her tax records from the anti-abortion yeah. activists? So it's so interesting mm-hmm. because she was touting for so many years that she was a pawn in these abortion activists game when in turn, really, she was being given so much help and money from the anti-abortion activists and she needed that help. She was still not doing well, you know, and so yep. if someone is coming along and saying, look, we're going to give you money and support and we're going to give you this life, of course, somebody who has been through everything that Norma has is going to be like, yeah, I'm on board, totally. And so it was kind of like a quote unquote deathbed confession. And she kind of came forward saying that she made her conversion politically and sexually entirely because of financial reasons. And I Mm -hmm. think that it's really important that she made that distinction before she passed away. Um, After her partner, Connie, passed away in 2006, she moved out of the home that they shared together and she actually lived until 2017 when she passed away in Katy, Texas. So I'm glad that in the last years of her life she was able to be more authentically herself, share her true views and things like that. But the whole story is so unbelievable of uh, what she went through during that time. Right. I mean, we need to make a movie. I will say, yeah, I mean, I will say like, it's hard because the damage she did in those years when she was, was so real um, alleging to be anti-choice, uh, it can't be undone. Like she did real serious damage there. Especially um, being Jane Roe. Like yes, they got exactly. the best poster child mm-hmm. they possibly and could. And they knew it. And of course they people it. are going to listen to her because she was like, even I'm against this. And I was the person that was originally mm-hmm. trying to, you know what I mean? Like, Right. What it's what made her advocate. so valuable. Exactly. It's what made her so valuable. It's why she made so much money uh-huh. doing it. And I do think it's so layered and having these discussions about like inequality and socioeconomic class and the things that we can do um, to ease that disparity that people don't feel like they need to be um, in these situations that are so desperate. That they would just uh, however, take the money even though yeah. they don't necessarily mm-hmm. align with those views. Yep, exactly. You gotta survive so though. So I wanna, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really tough. Um, I wanna talk about what will happen if Roe is overturned. Yes. So there's this great uh, TED Talk by Catherine Colbert, who is an attorney who has argued two major abortion cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, including the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, mm-hmm. which Another is credited- Another very big case. Mm-hmm, as saving Roe v. Wade. And she- is also the founder, the co-founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights. So in December of last year, when she was giving this TED Talk about what comes next if Roe v. Wade is overturned, she said directly, Roe v. Wade will be dead within the year. Mm. She said that in December, uh. you know, um, which just like chills, right? Complete she chills. said that when that happens, she would guess that about half the states in the country will ban all or most abortions. And this is a move we are already seeing um, states begin to prepare for after the draft leak. It is likely that 26 states will immediately ban or greatly restrict abortion access. And we know this because 21 of those states already have trigger laws on the books set to go into effect the second the decision comes down that Roe is overturned. So the second that Roe is overturned, there's 21 all states, of these laws already mm-hmm. lined up and ready to go. Right. All you got to do is and pull they will, that trigger. 
Yep, they will go into effect immediately. So according to the Guttmacher Institute, which uh, I mentioned earlier, and it's a research group that supports abortion rights, 58% of U.S. women of reproductive age, or roughly 40 million, live in states that are hostile to abortion. So at the time of her TED Talk, uh, Catherine mentioned that there were 15 states that were controlled by pro-choice legislators and governors, and that women seeking abortions would be forced to travel to those select states in order to access abortion and other reproductive health care services. Others will seek medication abortions and could likely face criminal prosecution for doing so in their state. So Mm -hmm. they could get, you know, a medication... um, uh, abortion, but if they are but found out, it would out, be incredibly. It's illegal. It's going to mm-hmm. be dangerous. It's illegal. Secretive. So it's dangerous. <sighs> Still, many more will not be able to afford to travel or pay out of pocket for these procedures, and will carry their unintended pregnancies to term with a you know variety of implications and results, as we've said. At this time, according to the CDC, African American women, Latinx women. Um, and Native American women, and I should say people with uteruses, please know. Right, but a lot of these, a lot of the times we're rewriting what we're reading in our research to be more correct in what we're speaking, but a lot of these statistics still use terms like woman when referring Mm -hmm. to someone who's pregnant. Yes, yes. So please know that I'm I'm referring to people with uteruses whenever I say that. Um, But according to the CDC, African-Americans, Latinx people, and Native American people are dying of pregnancy-related causes at three times the the rate of white people. Of course. Um, That number will surely increase if Roe is overturned. Three times the rate. Domestic violence rates for pregnant women are already incredibly high and are only likely to increase if people are unable to access the kind of reproductive health care they need. Pregnant people are also far more likely to stay in abusive situations because yeah. they are pregnant. Yeah, um, they oftentimes, need the, the financial support or the help or anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so yes, much it's harder very, just doing a very it on scary your own. Time. Mm-hmm. Poverty for people with uh, uteruses will worsen. Studies show that people who are denied an abortion and carry an unwanted pregnancy to term have four times greater odds of living below the federal poverty level. Yep. Um, deaths of pregnant people will also increase in part because legal abortion is actually safer than childbirth. I yep. cannot emphasize that enough. Childbirth is actually so far more dangerous than a legal abortion um, with complications being extremely rare for illegal abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2019, the U.S. maternal mortality rate was 20 maternal deaths per 100,000 live yeah. births. I actually... In contrast... I have a... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I have a friend back home whose sister passed away while giving birth to her child mm-hmm. this year, and it was... It was incredibly horrible. I believe it was like a brain aneurysm that she had while she was in labor and she never got to meet her child. The father is now a single father raising this baby. And it's just Mm -hmm. when you were talking about that, it made me think of it because truly like it was just such a random thing. It wasn't like this was something that was on her mind throughout her pregnancy. They were so excited to have this baby and then she was just gone. It, it truly is dangerous. You know what I mean? Pregnancy is, I feel like we don't talk about it enough and maybe we can have an entire episode on this. Um, there are things that can and do happen to so many people's bodies during right. pregnancy that are incredibly dr- uh, traumatic. Yeah. Um, 
And sometimes irreversible people's teeth fall out, mm-hmm. their hair falls out, um, you know, and I your mean, brain Ma- chemistry can change forever. Forever. Like, and I mean, there's also things like Max's mom didn't realize that she had the autoimmune diseases that she had. And, you know, Max was poor thing curled in a ball because he didn't have enough amniotic fluid. He was like trying to stay alive and they had mm-hmm. to remove him like three months early. You know, there's all of these things that can go wrong. So especially if you're already in this position of poverty or you can't access just the healthcare in general that you would need when you're pregnant, if you can't afford it, all of these things. When you talk about the fact that abortion is so much safer and less expensive, why wouldn't this be an option? (laughs) Just an option, right? It's a choice. Like it's a choice. If you want to, if you feel equipped and ready and excited uh, for motherhood and that's something that you want, please do that. But I feel like minimizing the risks of pregnancy um, and then also all of the other factors, the financial uh, burden for, you know, it's privileged as fuck, really. That's all it is. It's being unable to think outside of yourself and think that other people might have different difficulties in their lives than you have. Like if you have the means to have an abortion and you just don't want them, maybe that's against your morals or things like that, that still gives you no right to dictate what somebody right. else is going That's to That's your choose. choice. Yeah. It's your what, choice, right? What Sally does has nothing to do with Jane. Don't worry about what Sally right. is doing. Not your circus, not your monkeys. Let Sally do yes. her thing. Exactly. God damn so, it. So, you know, with those numbers, so 20 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. In contrast, there are 0.7 maternal deaths per 100,000 legal induced abortions, so less than one. Yeah. Um, and there are 30, so the highest, 30 maternal deaths per 100,000 illegal induced abortions. So that is... Okay, because illegal induced abortions um, are associated with higher rates of infections, sepsis, and hemorrhage, higher needs for hospitalization and hyster. Wow. Higher needs for hospitalization and hysterectomies. So you have 20 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births in general as the U.S. maternal mortality rate. You have 30 maternal deaths per 100,000 for illegal induced abortions. So if you get rid of legal abortions, women are still going to be seeking to end their pregnancies. They are going to do it illegally, unsafely, and the number for maternal mortality is going to go up. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just, that is, those are just the facts. Yeah. It's just going to happen, you know? Um, So what can we do now? In her TED Talk, Catherine Colbert talks about a future in which we could potentially pass a constitutional amendment, um, something that she calls the gender equity amendment that would, quote, guarantee to all persons the ability to make decisions not just about abortion, but about pregnancy and marriage and sexuality and parenting. Mm -hmm. And it would be a permanent part of the United States Constitution. So imagine that future. Um, She goes on to say that, quote, these rights should not be controlled by politicians. They shouldn't be dependent on where you live or how much money you make or the color of your skin or the person you love or the pronouns you use. These are universal, fundamental human rights, and they ought to be guaranteed in law, in the Constitution, so that the Supreme Court cannot willy-nilly take them away. So Mm -hmm. we already know that we need to be politically active. 
And the only way to make a change is to be loud and make alliances. But as bleak as it is, it has become very clear that we cannot rely on politicians, even democratic politicians, to protect our interests. We are going to have to do it ourselves. There is no other way because the thing is, in the two-party system that we have currently, Democrats rely on things like this happening. They yeah. rely on us being in a constant state of fear of having our rights taken away so that they, they can, can always play in. this card <laughs> mm-hmm, and say, hey, you have to vote for us because look at what they're trying to do. You don't want that to happen, so you have to vote for us. And they can get away with doing absolutely nothing for <laughs> us. Jill Biden. Right? Like, they, they don't have to ever do anything for us because all they have to do is say, well, we're not them. And, and aren't you terrified all the time that your yep. rights are going to be taken away? And that's exactly why interest. we wanted everyone to vote for Biden. Like, it's such bullshit. And he's yes, literally yes, done nothing. Mm-hmm. It's in their best interest to keep us as scared as possible. And that is, I'm sorry, just the the harsh reality and the bleak truth of it. And... um because of that, we are going to have to start becoming more active as individuals. Um, we're going to have to start our own organizations and movements to combat this. We're going to have to start running for office at all levels, starting at the school board and up through local government um, or working on campaigns of other champions of our causes. And we're going to have to start being far more vocal, knocking on doors, writing letters. You know, this goes so, so far beyond the vote at this point because I hear that so much, like get out and vote. And yes, get out and vote. But it's simply not effective enough no. at this point. We've got to get um, to like local grassroots activism. It's also, I just think that there is such an importance in sharing not necessarily just your stories, because I know that that can be something that's also very emotionally taxing, but just being open about your feelings about all of this and talking to people about it. And I think that just continuing to take down the stigma of what abortion means and getting the word out there is also just incredibly important. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I, I think it's important to have these conversations because it's easy to feel really helpless. And I think my first thought, I feel like I'm like a little bit of a fixer. I like to go in and try and like fix, fix the problem. What are the solutions? Right. And so, um, I'm always looking for solutions and I don't want to feel helpless. And so I think it is important to find action items that we can do. And one of those, um, if you have the means, if you are financially able, um, your money can go a really long way right now. You can donate to abortion access funds. Um, people will need transportation. They will need time off work. Um, and travel is really expensive. <laughs> so you can, um, you, don't we know it? We were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, right now travel is only for the rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly, really. Um, so you can move money towards abortion through the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, there is also an organization called Keep Our Clinics. It's a um, campaign that's spearheaded by the Abortion Care Network. Um, you can also find aid at the, at specific state levels at abortionfunds.org. So you can actually go onto their website um, and, you know, find a specific state and find a way to donate to that, um, to people in that state specifically. Awesome. So, Let's put all of those links in our show notes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's all really, really great. 
uh, resources. So thank you. I appreciate that. Because yes, when you were going through everything that the person in the TED Talk was saying, I was feeling a little bit hopeless. So thank you for <laughs> yeah. um, giving us some some um, solutions at the end of yeah. a lot of really bad news. Yeah. And let me give you just one more. So if Please. you can't, um, if you can't donate financially, I understand money right now is so tight. Everything is so expensive right now. Um, you can also volunteer to escort folks um, to your local abortion clinic. Uh, you can become a talk line advocate for people who are weighing their reproductive options. Um, and, you know, so you can check that out. Find abortion clinic offices where you can volunteer and ask what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of ways that you can be of assistance in uh, at this time, which is just a really scary time right now. Yeah, certainly. Well, we always tend to go long when we record separately or if we have to split it up. So we did go a little bit long today, but I hope that all of you found this episode informative. I hope that it cleared some, maybe some questions up about Uro that you didn't know about. And I hope that for everyone who suggested this episode, we made you happy because <laughs> there were yes. a few. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have any future suggestions for episodes, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to check out some of your Angry Neighborhood Feminist merch, you can go to the link in our bio on our Instagram or check out the show notes for wherever you're listening to the show right now. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners in the group page. Last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, it means the world to us when you leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. We will be eternally grateful. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.